may be seated. So welcome. Um, the last few weeks we've been talking a lot about church, and partly because we went through 13 chapters of the book of Acts, which is about the early church, and we ended uh, with some thoughts about church as movement, uh, where we see the, the, the church move from being in Jerusalem, where it's kind of this centralized body, to being a movement where there's multiple sending centers. And so you've got Jerusalem, you've got Antioch, and then very soon after that you have several other churches that are being planted and are sending out missionaries, and it turns into this uh, movement. And as we, as we looked at that and talked about that, um, it was very inspiring, I thought. And it was inspiring for me. I love talking about that and thinking about that, thinking about church as movement. But as I think we looked at that and, and thought, well, what would it look like if that really was happening in Mercy House, which it is to some degree, um, but could it happen in a greater way? And talked about discipleship and making disciples, and uh, it, it caused me to think, you know what, we should really do a few weeks where we're getting down into the nitty-gritty of what it takes in terms of a culture of a church to make, make a movement happen, right? to make discipleship happen. Um, and as I'm thinking about that, uh, it made me think of Ephesians 3 and 4. I, I think in, in, in this couple of chapters, uh, Paul really gets at uh, what a church has to, to experience if they're going to be a disciple-making, movement uh, kind of a church. And so we're spending three weeks in Ephesians 3.14 through chapter 4, verse 16. So you may want to grab one of these Bibles on the floor, uh, open that up to Ephesians it's in the New Testament. And you, it's going to help you to follow along. There will also be some scriptures there on the, on the screen as we go. But we started off last week talking about the church needing to be empowered. And so what we learned from that is the Holy Spirit's at work in the hearts of every Christian and is empowering them to comprehend the love of Jesus. And this week we want to look at how the church gets established. right? Um, and so... What we look at in Ephesians 4, the first six verses, is both what the established church looks like and how you get there, or at least the beginning conversation of how you get there. So how do you, what does an established church look like and how do you get there? So we start off Ephesians 4, verse 1. Uh, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So he immediately describes the established church as a church that's walking, right? So this is where Paul says, get to work. The first three chapters is theology, it's gospel, uh, it's how the gospel is played out in, in the church theologically. But here he's like, it's time to walk this thing out. It's time to get to work. It's time to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. So what's this calling he's talking about? Uh, he's talking about their conversion. He's talking about when they initially heard God calling to them and revealing to them that they were sinners and they needed a Savior and that Christ's death on the cross saved them from that sin. And when they heard that, they responded in faith, right? Saving faith. And he says, now that you have that saving faith, now walk in a manner that's worthy of that amazing call that you had when you were converted to Christ. Uh, he then describes the beginnings of what that walk looks like. Now, really, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are describing what walking in a manner worthy looks like, right? 
Um, but he describes the first, first couple of verses here where what is this walking in a manner worthy look like? It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it's interesting. He says, walk in a manner worthy, and then he talks about the community in the church. As moderns, we would kind of think he would say, uh, here's how you as an individual walk out this manner that's worthy, right? And he will get to that. There will be places in Ephesians where he's like, stop stealing, get a job, and be generous with what you make, right? So that's like to the individual. But, but what he does in this section here, he, he says, I want you to walk this out in community. And, and, and this is by God's design, right? We don't, we don't walk with Jesus alone. We walk with Jesus in community. The whole book of Ephesians is about the church. It's all about community. And he gives a few little descriptors of, of how an established, a mature uh, kind of a church, how, the, how they interact. And he uses words like humility, right? Humility, he's, he's saying people that are part of an established, mature church, they are dependent on gospel grace such that they are willing to get their attention off themselves and onto God and onto other people. That's, that's humility. Then he says that they, there's gentleness there. Gentleness is that you're, you're careful in the way you interact with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You do whatever you can not to unnecessarily offend them, and you take into consideration how they're going to feel once you say something or do something. You're, you're, you're gentle with them. He uses the word patience. So this is interesting. So while you're being gentle with other people, uh, you're patient with people who are not gentle with you. So you're, you're giving grace to others by being, being gentle, and then you're giving grace to, to those that aren't. You're being patient. Right? This is the opposite of, of what unsaved sinners that are centered on self would do. You, you, if you're unsaved, you're sinner, you're centered on self, you're going to give grace to yourself and be hard on other people. And he says that's not how the church functions. The church is the exact opposite. You give grace to others. Right? You're gentle with others. You're patient with others. And you call yourself to a high standard, like bearing with one another in love. Saying lifting the weight of the burdens of people around you. Not just concerned about the burdens of your own life, which everyone's got burdens. Even in, in a society like ours, where we have a lot of good things and a, a, lot, a lot of Burdens that we don't have to carry that most of the rest of the planet is carrying, yet we still feel burdened. But he's saying, no, Christians are, are, are willing to, yes, bear their, their own burdens, but they're, they're willing to like, reach out and help bear the burdens of the other brothers and sisters in the church. And then he kind of ties it all in a bow that they are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so this, this drive, by the Christians in the church to remain unified, eager. That's the, the work of unity is hard work. And yet he describes these, these Christians as being eager to maintain that unity, which is of the spirit and is gospel-centered. When he says bond of peace, he's talking about gospel. He's talking about gospel peace. And so it's a beautiful description, right? Again, it, it, 
it, it feels like it's sort of pie in the sky. Like, wow, the Apostle Paul, you're amazing, painting this beautiful picture of this perfect church, but, but how do we do it on the ground? How do we do it among a bunch of sinners that, yes, are saved by grace, but we're a wreck? Like, how do we do this? And I think the next three verses really show us how it looks on the ground. How, how do you become the established, mature church? So we're going to have six, six different truths that we're going to draw from these three verses uh, as we go. But I'm going to read 4, 5, and 6, verses 4, 5, and 6, and then we'll, we'll get into those points. So there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So that's what we're going we're gonna to unpack that. So number one, we need to understand that when we joined Jesus, we joined his church. When we joined Jesus, we joined his church. This is what he's saying when he says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So he's saying, just as you were called to that one hope when you became a Christian and you as an individual were converted, you were also called to one body, one spirit. That's very un-American, the way people think about church. People think about church in America, they think of, that it's, an, it's optional. They think, yeah, 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 I want to I come to Jesus and I want to be a Christ follower, but I don't want to also have to be a part of his church. I want to leave church kind of as a good or service that I consume as I want. And the Apostle Paul's like, nope. No, just as you were called as an individual to salvation in Christ, you're also called to one body and one spirit, right? When we join Jesus, we join his church. It's much like when we are born as an individual, we are born into a family, right? When we were a little baby, we were an individual, but we were immediately part of the family, whether we liked it or not, Right? Most of you, a lot of you know the Copacs, they had their baby just a couple days ago. And uh, little, little Eleanor Copac uh, is an individual. She's a single, solitary human. But she's also part of the Copac family. Right? She's both an individual and she's part of the family. This is our story, too, as the, our spiritual birth. We're born into faith for Jesus, and, and then we're part of his body. We're part of his body. Now think about this one body. Why, why, this is Paul's favorite illustration for the church, the body. And the body is uh, a beauty, beautiful, unified whole of, of diverse parts. And so it really communicates the, the heart behind God's design for the church. There's a oneness to it, there's a unity to it, but then there's a diversity to it. There's all kinds of different gifts and strengths, but they're working in this unified whole. There's functionality and there's beauty. Right? There, there, there is precision engineering and there's this breathtaking art to the body. And this is the church. This is the church. It's, if it's working properly, it's highly functional. It's also beautiful. It's glorious. It's, it's emanating God's glory. It, we, we talked about last week, it, it, it shows the manifold wisdom of God. 
And this is, this is the one body that we're all a part of if we are, are also a part of uh, Jesus. And we're being assisted by the Holy Spirit, the one Spirit. And this is the second point, right? We, if we're going to be an established church, a mature church, we're going to follow the initiation of the Holy Spirit. Which is why he says one Spirit. Not only are you one body, but you're one Spirit. The Spirit is assisting us in unifying all that diversity that makes up the local church. And the Spirit's able to do that because the Spirit is dwelling inside of every Christian. So every Christian who's placed saving faith in the gospel has the Holy Spirit residing in them, and that Holy Spirit is communicating with that Christian. And so when that Christian gets together with other Christians, then the, the Spirit can bring about a unity. So for instance, next week we're going to have our biannual church summit, and we're going to talk about the budget and what monies came in and where we spent it and where we think we need money for the future and vision for the church. And our, we're trusting that folks are going to come in yielded to the Holy Spirit. And as we're having that conversation, the Holy Spirit's going to bring unity around what we decide to do and how we vote and uh, what's going to be the, the final product of that meeting. It's not just going to be some smart brains that are coming in there and thinking really hard although that's part of it, but it's going to be God's Spirit working in each believer to unify them around a, a vision that the Holy Spirit has for us. Uh, when we sing as a church, we're, we're exemplifying this truth, right? We're singing, for the most part, in unison. Now, there's a few of you that are really good singers, and you sing a little harmony here or there. That's okay. I'm not saying don't do that. But in general, we're singing in unison, we're singing the same words, the same tune. Well, most of us sing the same tune. But anyway, but we hear the note, right? And we sing on that note, in that key. And, and it exemplifies what we believe is happening spiritually, that, that the Holy Spirit is giving us a note. And, and, and that those that have the Holy Spirit inside of them can hear that note and can, can sing on key. Right? And it brings, it brings a unity uh, to the church that's supernatural. He goes on in verse 5 and says, not only do we have one body, one spirit, but we have one Lord. So this is the third truth, that, that as a church, if we're going to be established, we're going to be mature, we're going to have to submit to our king, which is Jesus. When the New Testament speaks of the Lord, it's talking about Jesus. So that's a little, little interpretive key there for you. Um, Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And the God's kingdom is advanced through the church. This is God's plan A. There is no plan B. And what we read in a few verses later in Ephesians 4.15, which we'll get to next week, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So he's saying Jesus, Jesus is the king of the church. He's the head of of the church, and everybody has the same king, there's going to be unity. Humans can't do anything in unison unless they've got a leader that helps them unify around a common vision and a common strategy to, to reach that vision. I was talking to Favorite. A lot of you know Favorite. She's a grad student in nursing, and she was at a meeting uh, this past week that was about uh, this organization and how this organization had really contributed to the reduction of infections of HIV AIDS. And they'd seen a, a lot of, of, of good uh, 
traction and good work in African countries uh, through this organization. So uh, one of the countries that had done the best with using the monies that they'd been given to start programs and start health um, programs to help people, uh, the, one of the best countries was Rwanda. And um, Fabrice from Rwanda, that's why they asked her to come and she was on a panel and she got to speak to it. Uh, but I asked her, I said, well, why is Rwanda having better success at using resources to bring down the infection of HIV and AIDS? And she says, because of its leaders. So their leaders are good leaders. And some of the other countries that had had the same resources did not do as well with the resources because their leaders were corrupt. Right? We, when we have good leaders and we have a good king and we serve that king and submit to that king, it brings a unity, it brings a functionality even. And this is, our king is not me, okay? Our king is not the elders. Our king is Jesus. He's the king of the church. Now, again, you hear that and you think, that sounds all well and good, right? It's very lofty. Like, okay, one body, one spirit. We just got to follow King Jesus. Check. Got it. We're good. We're all unified, established, matured. But we know it's messier than that. We know when we get a, a, a group of sinners in the room and, and we're, we're trying to work out what it means to be one body, one spirit, one king, one Lord, uh, that, that it's not as easy as it sounds, which is why I think he adds the next two, which are uber practical. Right? This, this is like down in the nitty gritty of what you got to do to work out unity and be an established church. And that next thing is one faith, one faith. Now, the one faith is a set of core teachings that have been passed on from the apostles down through the ages and have been given to every true church. Now, usually when we, we see the word faith in the scriptures, for the most part, we are talking about the faith that we would exercise in that truth, which reveals Jesus to us, and that becomes the means by which we become a Christian, right? This is a little different. Here he's talking about the faith, right? This identifiable body of knowledge that's being passed down through the ages in the church. I'll show you what I mean. Um, places like Colossians 2, uh, also written by the Apostle Paul. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Did you hear what he's, he's saying? He's saying that, there, that there's, there's something they've been taught that is the faith. Right? It's, a, it's an identifiable body of knowledge that's been passed down. And Paul's received that, and now he's passing it on to Timothy, or, or, or the, the Church of Colossae, and then they're passing it on to their folks, right? And, and, and this is part of what an established church must have. They must have the faith. We hear uh, the Apostle Paul saying this in other parts of his letters. He says in 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So here he's letting them know some people are going to walk away from that identifiable body of knowledge. He's saying that's a problem. Church is, is going to crumble if, if you don't have the faith, the one faith that you're, you're preaching, you're teaching, you're trusting 
And he, a few verses later in 1 Timothy 4, says this to Timothy, again, a young pastor. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. So again, there he's saying there's these words, right? these truths that are identifiable that have to be passed on to those that are in the church. And then Jude 1.3, this is Jude, the, one of the brothers of Jesus, uh, saying this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so he's saying, I wanted to write about, yeah, our common faith that we've placed in Christ and that we share, but, but I have actually having to write to make sure you believe the faith. This, this faith that's been passed down through the ages and been delivered to the saints. So on one hand, absolutely, there's this subjective work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives to, to convert us. And to, to, like last week, we talked about being, uh, being empowered to, to know experientially the love of Christ. But then on the other hand, there's, there's this these objective truth claims that we as a church must hold fast to. It's not just about subjective experience. And when it is just about subjective experience, anything goes. Just whoever's got the strongest experience. says, oh, I feel this. I feel the Lord saying this. And if they're really passionate and they're really articulate, then everybody goes, yeah, that's where we're going to go. And, and the Apostle Paul's like, no, no, no. No, there is the faith that we must hold fast to, the one faith. Oftentimes the church throughout the ages has used, have used creeds to make sure that people understood the faith. The earliest of those creeds is known as the Apostles' Creed. It's the simplest of the creeds. Um, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to say the creed. If you're a Christian, you, you can say this creed. If you're not a Christian, you just listen and, and uh, just See what we believe. So let's, let's stand. Let's read this. You ex-Catholics, you're all excited now. You're like, man, that's what we did when I was a kid. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So the one faith... The one faith. So again, this is partly how we establish, we unify, we mature, that we come together as one body in the power of one spirit under the kingship of one Lord is that we are committed to one faith. But still you think about that and, and you think, okay, so we're going to believe the same thing. But, but how do you make sure everyone stays on the same page? 
Right? It's one thing for me to stand up here in the front and say, this is what we all believe, and we can even stand up and say a creed. But, but how do you make sure the church is, is centered on, is, is established in sound doctrine of the faith? And this is, this is the next piece, one baptism. One baptism. Um, the process that goes into baptism, I think, is, is helpful to understand how the church stays unified around the one faith. And partly because the process of baptism includes vetting someone's belief before they are baptized by the church. So, for instance, in that, that creed, right, Apostles' Creed, it's probably a baptismal creed. It, it, was, it was most likely used starting in the second century as people were like, yeah, I want to become a Christian. And they're like, okay, great. Here's the Apostles' Creed. Read that, memorize it, let's talk about it for six months, and then on Easter Sunday, we'll baptize you if you believe this, if you truly believe this. So, so there's a vetting that happens that, that, that before someone is baptized and the church uses its declarative power to say, we believe this person's a Christian, they have some kind of process to help discern that. Now for us, it's Meet Mercy House. If you want to become a, a member of this church, you want to be baptized, you've got to come to a class. It's four hours long, and, 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 and part of that is we say, here's what we believe, so you can ask questions about that and clarify that, and, and then we have lunch, and over lunch, everyone shares their testimony about how they came to faith in Christ, and we're listening to hear whether or not we think you understand the gospel, whether or not we think you've come to the realization you're a sinner, you need a Savior, and that you believe that Savior is Jesus, and it, it's, it's not like a master's level course on theology, but it, it is the basics of the faith. It's the faith, right? And we want to make sure you know that. And sometimes people come into that class and we listen and we say, you know what? Let's take another few months and let's keep talking and let's keep reading and let's not quite sure you're there yet. And that's a hard conversation, but we take it seriously because we believe that the process of baptism is part of how we vet people before they're allowed into the church. And again, when we baptize someone, we're saying we believe that they, as best we know, we don't know for sure, but as best we know, we believe they are Christians. And they are becoming part of our church when they are baptized. I uh, had a couple of conversations with some different people that are uh, staff workers for parachurch ministry, so they don't work for a church, they work for a, a Christian organization that's, that's kind of a partner of the church. And uh, one guy called me up one day, and he's like, hey, I was calling to see if you'd baptize some kids that have become Christians. And I said, well, to tell me more. You know, do they, do they want to join our church? What, what is it you want? And, and he said, no, 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 they don't want to join your church. They just want to get baptized. I said, I won't do it. I will not do it. He said, why not? I said, well, because I believe that that symbol of baptism is not only saying that they've joined Jesus, but they've joined the church. It's partly a, why Jesus institutes baptism. You cannot baptize yourself. It literally forces you into community, just, just like the taking of the bread and the cup. You, you can't give yourself communion. Right? You can't stay at home and baptize yourself and give yourself communion. You've got to be pushed out into community. You've got to move toward the church to be baptized and, and to take uh, communion. And so again, this, this, this process around baptism vets people as they, as they come in. They say, okay, well, you vet them when they come in, but what if once they're in, they're not on the same page? 
What if they were on the same page and then they leave the page? Like, what, what, what do you do then? Then you do what's called church discipline. Now, ch- church discipline usually starts a very organic way. It's, it's, it's nothing that the, the whole church knows about. It's, it's usually somebody is ceasing to believe the truths of the gospel or they're, they're, they're refusing to practice the truths of the gospel. They're, 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 they're being unrepentant in some way. And this is not someone who's like struggling to repent and, and, and working through something. This is something that, that's absolutely habitually unrepentant, not interested in repenting kind of a behavior. And so what usually happens is a person who's a member of the church is a friend with that person and says, hey, out of love, I just I want to talk to you about this. Either what you're believing is, is not, it's not consistent with the gospel or how you're living is not consistent with the gospel. I love you. I, I want to I have a, t- a conversation. And, and usually that's all it takes, right? That's, that's church discipline level one. No one even knows it happened half the time. And the person is willing to repent and to, to move toward Christ, to move toward community. But if that person's not open to that, then that, that person that's confronting them would reach out to another person in the church and say, hey, could you have a, a conversation along with me with this person? Because I love them and I want them to repent. And so then it would be three people having a conversation. So the circle has opened up, but not much, just a little bit. So there's protection of that person. Now, getting the second person involved also protects the person being accused, because if you can't find a second person to get involved, then you're probably the problem. <laughs> you're, you're falsely accusing someone. That's not always the case, but, but oftentimes if you can't get another person involved in that conversation, they're like, no, 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 you, you shouldn't be accusing them of that. That's not true. And it protects the person that's being confronted. But if two people come into that conversation and they confront the person lovingly and that person's still not willing to repent, then the circle gets bigger. Usually it involves the pastor or the elders or some kind of leadership. And then if that continues on and the person's like, no, I'm not going to believe rightly about the gospel. I'm not going to repent from this sin. Then the whole church can get involved. And this process is... Uh, is spoken about in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus himself describes this, and we call it church discipline. But but the reason is, is, is maintaining unity in the church, maintaining maturity in the church, maintaining the witness of the church, and the good of the person. If you, if you see your, your brother or sister in Christ going off the rails, you, out of love, you want to encourage them to come back to Christ, come back. To community. This is, this is part of how we establish. This is part of how we mature as a church. This is tough stuff. This is the tough, on-the-ground, nitty-gritty kind of work that the church must be a part of. And not just the leaders, but everybody. Everybody is part of that. Um, the idea of membership is something I think as a church we've been growing into. And again, you're not going to look in the Bible and you're not going to see the word membership, right? But, the, but it provides a structure that helps teach and communicate these things that I'm talking about that I think are biblical. This idea of being in a covenant community where you're devoted to one another in, in an actual local church. And so when we started, we, it, was, it was a little bit of a free-for-all. It, it did. It felt more like a campus ministry. It was like, we just preach the gospel, we make disciples, we see people come to faith, we baptize them, let's just keep moving, right? And, and then 
I think we got to the place where we're like, we're not forming as a congregation. We're just like a herd of cats, just going off all kinds of places and believing all kinds of things. How, how do we help us become one? And this is part of it. A greater understanding of what the one faith is, a, a, a greater a process of vetting those that come in and are identified as members of our church, a, a ongoing church discipline as needed of folks that are in the church that are leaving the gospel or not uh, living in a, a way that's, that's worthy of the gospel. And so I would say to th- those of you that are, are here this morning and you've never joined our church, join it. Become a member of the church. You're missing out. Right? It, this is part of how Jesus grows us as a disciple. This is part of what it means to be a, a church that can be and make and multiply disciples, is that we have uh, this robust understanding of, of, of being a member of the church, pouring ourselves in, our time, our talent, our treasure. Like next week in the, in the church summit, we're going to look at this proposed budget, the spending plan, and, and you know what? It's going to propose a, a pretty large increase in spending because we have some real vision for how we th- think God wants to work in our congregation, but that's not going to get paid for if we don't have members that are like super vested in the vision and are saying, yes, I want that too, and I'm willing to do more than just say, yes, I want that too. I'm willing to pray toward that, work toward that, give toward that, do whatever I've got to do. And so the concept of membership helps to cultivate that kind of commitment to the local body. And so if you've been dating the church, it's time to get married. It's time to get married. Now, when you're dating someone, you're vested to some degree. You're pouring in some time and some treasure. And, but but it, it ain't like marriage. You're pouring everything into that, right? You're pouring everything into that. And so this is, this is church membership. Like you're, you're moving from dating to, to marriage, right? This is partly why we renew our church covenant every February. In our church covenant, it has both belief and practice, right? And it's just simple belief. It's not, it's not like a theological dissertation. Like it's simple stuff, gospel stuff, and then how we practice that gospel truth. And we stand up as members and we read that through together and we sign papers. Why are we doing that? We're doing that because we, we do. We want to, to, to communicate, over-communicate even, what it means to be a member of this local body. One faith and one baptism. Now all this is being presided over by one God and Father of all. Look at verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the whole Trinity is in this list. Did you notice that? It starts off with one spirit. So the spirit's dwelling inside each believer, helping to unify the believers in the church. There's one Lord, right? King Jesus is over uh, the church. He's the head of the church. And then there's one God and Father. The Father is superintending all of this, right? My dad was a superintendent of schools, right? He was over the elementary school, the middle school, the high school, and had principals and teachers and all kinds of employees under him. But the overall vision, the overall movement of that particular school system was being led by my dad, right? He was superintending each of those little schools within his school system. Well, God the Father is superintending the church global, right? The church universal, 
but he's also doing that on the local level too. And, and so what, what this reminds us of, and this is like the, the sixth principle here, is that the essence of the church is family. It's family. The essence is not institution. It's not organization. It, it, it's family. And this is why we say we are mercy house, right? We're a household of faith. We want to be family for each other. And you don't always like your family, but you love them. You love them, right? You, your friends, you like your friends. That's why you call them your friends, and you hang out with them because you like them. But your family, you like some of your family, you don't like some of your family, but you love your family. Some of us do church like friends. So I like this church. I like these people in this church, and I hang out with these particular people because I like them. That's treating people as friends, and that's not how church works. Church is family. And so, yeah, you can have friends in the church, and you can like the people in the church. I'm not saying that, that that can't happen. But the essence of it is that you're family. You're committed to one another. You're devoted to one another. And whether you like each other or you don't like each other, you're committed. Right? Why else would, would the Apostle Paul say things like, you guys need humility and gentleness and patience if it was so easy to do church? You wouldn't need to be exhorted to be gentle and patient unless it was really hard. And so, again, this is, this is the essence of the church. It's not friends, it's family. So what do we do with this? Right? How do we apply this? So, so I think there's a lot of ways to apply it. Maybe the Spirit's already helping you to start to do some application, but here's three different applications I think we can draw from this. Um, Number one, just the greater awareness of the cosmic realities that are at play here in the church, right? We've, we've got the spirit that's working and dwelling inside of us, and he's working to maintain the unity. We have King Jesus, who is the one Lord, who's the head, the king of the church. We have God the Father, who, who's over all and in all and superintending all of this stuff that's going on. The whole trinity is vested in the church, right? And not just sort of this theory of church, but in the local church, making things happen. And, and if, if, if you're not yielding to that, participating in that, then you're working against it. I think we like to think uh, that we can be neutral, that we can be in the church and we can just take it or leave it, treat it like a consumer, like, like it's a product that we can take or leave. And we think, I'm just sort of a neutral agent in the church. But honestly, that's, that's not a category. You're either yielding to Father, Son, and Spirit and the, the work that's being carried out in the local church, or you're working against it. And honestly, you're missing out and we're missing out. You're missing out an opportunity to grow more deeply in your faith and as a disciple of Jesus. This is his plan A for discipleship, and there's no plan B. And we're missing out on your gifts and your calling that God gave you, not for you, but for his church, to build up his church. And so just being a part, understanding, being reminded of these cosmic realities, I think is, is it's encouraging to me, right? We realize, wow, there's a lot more going on. There's just a sleepy little Sunday at Mercy House. Father, Son, and Spirit are at work. Number two, that we would take doctrine more seriously. 
take doctrine more seriously. Again, in 1 Timothy 4, 6, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. So he's talking to the pastors. You know, Pastor Timothy, if, if you train them, that sounds like a process. That's not like a one and done. Read a book, I'm good. Ongoing training in the words of, of the, the faith. Right? So that means that you need a steady diet of the faith on Sunday morning. You need a steady diet of the faith as you participate in small groups. We're going to roll out another uh, group of, of small groups for summer, six-week courses. Right? Why are we doing that? Because we, ne- we know you need a steady diet of the faith. You need to be trained in the faith. But even, uh, even more, you yourself as an individual need to be uh, training your own self. Right? Reading good books about the Bible that help you understand the Bible and reading the Bible itself. And this is just, this is ongoing process of being trained in the words of the faith. And number three, take membership seriously. Right? That those of you that are not members become members. And not just in, you know, in word only, but, but such that you could pour yourself in, your time, your talent, your treasure into a local body. And if it's not this body, then go to another body and pour yourself into that body, but find yourself a body. That's, that's what Jesus wants for you. I know his will for your life, okay? Because I read it in the Bible. He wants you to be a part of a local church. And we'd love for you to be a part of this local church. Uh, and so um, there'll, there'll be meet Mercy House classes and there'll be opportunities to, to say, yes, I'm signing the dotted line and I want to bring my gifts and my calling to this particular place. Um, we, what we are seeing is very encouraging. We've had a lot of folks join the church over the last uh, year. You saw a lot of them last week. They all came up here and stood in the first service uh, and some in the second. But a, a number of, of people, and they didn't just join in word alone, by, you know, just, just in name, but they actually signed on to serve. And so a lot of the, the folks that, that like serve on Sunday mornings and make things happen, uh, they've only been members of the church six months, 18 months. Like, and so they're, they're coming into that class and they're saying, I want to be a part of this church, not just in name only, but in a way that serves the needs of the body. I've also been encouraged when uh, we kind of gave a pitch for uh, folks to be part of a team called the Care Team, which is just a team that meets practical needs inside the congregation uh, and needs out in the community when they present themselves. And like a dozen people said, sign me on. I want to do that. I want to pour out. I want to bear burdens for other folks. Uh, that encouraged me to see that kind of, uh, of desire. And if you're interested in that, you can, you can talk to me about that. Um, you may be thinking, well, yeah, what about that part, like the ministry part, getting things done, and that's next week, okay? You have to come back next week to hear that sermon. But really, we, we can't come out of the blocks, right, in, in, in ministry until we're established, right? And, that, and that, that's why I think Paul gives us this uh, established piece here of, of the one, and then fill in the blank, Right? The one body, the one spirit, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, the one God and Father of all. He's knowing we, we need to be well established, and then we can come out of the blocks, and we can minister. And that's, that's next week, so we have to come back for that. And why do we want to do this? Because this, this stuff sounds hard, doesn't it? 
being a student of sound doctrine and being a member of a church where you pour out time, talent, and treasure, or, or participating in things like church discipline, or vetting people as they come here. I mean, this is, this is a hard work. This is way, way much, much more work than just having services and preaching sermons and singing some songs, right? This is the nitty-gritty, down-in-the-trenches kind of, of ministry that I think is required to bring about a disciple-making culture. And the reason we do that is because of this one hope that we have. This is the only one that I didn't talk about, right? And what's the one hope? The one hope is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's, it's the hope that Jesus was displaying on the night in which he was betrayed. And, and here he is. He's in community with his disciples. And they are a wreck. They are an unbelievably dysfunctional community because you've got one that's going to deny him, one's going to betray him. They're all going to scatter in fear. They're not going to defend him. They're not going to back him up. And if there was ever a time when Jesus should not have been patient, should not have been gentle, should not have been bearing their burdens, that would be the moment. But that's not what he does. He takes bread. He breaks it. He gives it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. And it's not just you individuals, it's y'all, right? It's you all. This community. It says, as often as you eat this, I want you to, to, to remember that I gave my body. And then he takes the cup in the same way. He blesses it, he gives it to them. He says, this cup is the new covenant. That, that's community language. That, that's, that's not just you, you individuals, you need saving grace, which they do. But this new covenant that he says, in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He's letting them know they will never be the people of God that God intended unless he goes to the cross the next day, dies for their sins so they can be forgiven and made new. And so he offers that to them on that night and he offers that to you this morning both as an individual and as a community. Saving grace to be forgiven of your sins, washed clean, given a new relationship, just as new as little Eleanor Kopak, right? just as new and fresh and reconciled with him, but then at the same time also new and fresh and reconciled with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're part of a, of a family. This is what happens when when you become a Christian. And it, it's what we're displaying when we baptize someone out last week in the cold water of Puffer's Pond. We're saying they've joined Jesus and they've joined this local body, right? And, and there is so much life in that, eternal life. And we will experience that in this life and the life to come. I mean, just think about that. We're, we're going into heaven, not just as individuals. Yes, individuals saved, but as a community, we're going in as the church. We, we're going to be family forever, <laughs> eternally. And this is how much grace that, that Christ has poured out at the cross. This is how much hope we have. And this is why we work to walk in a manner that's worthy of this gospel. It's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. So for some of you this morning, you may need to trust in Christ for the first time, to, to reach out to him in faith and pray to him and ask for forgiveness and ask that you be brought into relationship with him, which also includes being in relationship with his church. 
For others of us, I think we have a lot to, to think about in terms of, of our membership to the local body. What, what does that mean? What is God calling me to do or to be and take next steps in, in this body? And there, there's a hundred thousand things that, that he could be asking you to do. Maybe pray for the, the church more. Maybe, maybe give more. Maybe, maybe use your gifts in a new way. But let's, let's keep pressing into what it means to be one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your church. I don't think a lot of people, not in this country, are uttering that thanksgiving. Thank you for the church. But Lord, it, it is your precious bride. You died for her. You love her. God the Father, you, you are superintending all the ins and outs of the local church, Lord, in the church universal. Lord Jesus, you, you are our king. You have been uh, raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and from that place you rule and reign over the whole cosmos, but more uniquely over the church. And God the Holy Spirit, you dwell in us, both as individuals and as a family. Lord, we're, we're so grateful that you're that vested in this body and every other body around the globe. So Lord, help us understand that. Help us to live in that, to, to press into that as a body. Lord, help us to remain true to the one faith. Lord, help us to, by your grace, to continue to walk in a manner worthy of that faith that we believed when we first became Christians, Lord. And for those who are becoming Christians this morning for the first time, Lord, welcome them in. Welcome them into a relationship with you, but also welcome them into family. Lord, would you bless the bread and bless this cup, Lord, as we come around the family dinner table and are reminded of what makes this possible, this one hope that can only be found in you and what you did for us on the cross. Lord, thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.